A Flash Outside the Off Stump Episode 16 Constantine the Great Diplomat, Barrister, Rector of the University of St Andrews, BBC Governor, Cabinet Minister, ARP Warden, Founder Member of the Sports Council, Author, Independence Activist, Peer of the Realm, Highest Paid Sportsman in Britain, Grandson of Slaves. It's a very diverse set of roles, but they were all held at one time or another by the same man. He was one of the most remarkable, not to say inspirational characters of 20th century British history, yet today is largely forgotten. Anybody with this many strings to their bow was clearly an all-rounder. But who? Some astute children apparently had recognised his potential quite early on, at some point in late 1929 or early 1930, a Lancashire schoolmaster set his pupils a history exam. One of the questions was, who was Constantine the Great? A significant number of his charges apparently responded by ignoring the Roman emperor of that name and instead plumped for a professional cricketer from Nelson. To modern ears, this sounds a bit odd. International cricketers and some county players might still be household names, but club players largely go unnoticed, even in their own hometowns. Clearly times were very different in Depression-era Lancashire. The player the boys were referring to was Leary Constantine, who was indeed a member of Nelson's team in the Lancashire League, as well as being a leading member of the West Indies Test setup. and his story is truly remarkable. Cricket was definitely in the young Leary's blood. His father, Lebrun Constantine, was Trinidad's star batsman and had been a member of the groundbreaking West Indies team that had toured England in 1900 and 1906. His maternal uncle, Victor Pascal, also played for the West Indies, so both sides of his family were keen cricketers. Indeed, Leary later claimed that his mother, Anais, was a good enough wicketkeeper to have played for the West Indies herself, had she not been excluded by her gender. The young Leary Constantine had witnessed his mother's wicketkeeping prowess close up and at great length because of his parents' incredible training regime. His father would get the whole family involved in regular training sessions, in which he would bowl at full pace. He was particularly attentive to catching practice, and the young Leary would not only practice catching balls, but later crockery and knives as part of his routine. Not surprisingly, it was eventually as an incredibly agile fielder that he made his first big impact in the senior game. But that was still some way off. Leary spent his childhood in Marivelle, now a prosperous suburb of Port of Spain, Trinidad's capital. At the beginning of the 20th century, it was the route by which cocoa from the plantations in the Diego Martin Valley entered the capital. Lebrun Constantine, despite his fame and prowess as a cricketer, still had to work for a living, and was the overseer of one of these plantations. At that time, it was still fairly unusual for a black Trinidadian to hold such a position. But Lebrun was fortunate to have in Sydney Smith a liberal and far-sighted employer who was prepared to look beyond his skin colour and see the potential of the man. Undoubtedly, his skill and status as a cricketer helped too.
At the age of five, young Leary was made painfully aware of the issue of race by an incident outside his house. He still remembered it clearly nearly 60 years later when he recounted it on BBC Radio. We were playing in the road. I was no more than four or five years old. And two overseers were coming up on horses. And I could remember my mother shouting out with real fright in her voice. Don't play in the road. These white men will pass on you, you know. And for the first time, my consciousness was aroused that white men were indifferent to the lives of colored or black people. I never forget it. And it lasted years and years until I began to understand. Leary had a clear sense of his roots from an early age. His maternal grandfather, Ali Pascal, had died at an advanced age when Leary was eight. Leary and his younger siblings were each lifted over the open coffin three times in a Yoruba ceremony that had come from Africa with their ancestors. Ali had been born in Venezuela. His parents had been enslaved a few years earlier in the Niger Delta and carried away to South America on a Spanish slave ship. As a teenager, he had escaped to freedom in Trinidad by paddling across to the islands by canoe in the company of a young female slave called Malvina, who he later married. Leary's paternal grandparents had been born free, as the British had abolished slavery on the island in 1834, but their parents had been among the last to be imported legally into Trinidad. It is thought that the family acquired the surname Constantine because they had belonged to a French farming family of that name. In 1838, former slave owners had been able to claim compensation from the British government. Among those claiming from Trinidad were Jean-Baptiste Constantin, Rose Constantine and Catherine Constantine, who owned a total of 15 slaves between them. This was a drop in the ocean compared to the 17,539 slaves freed in Trinidad as a whole, but it seems almost certain that this 15 included Lebrun's grandparents. The Constantines lived well by the standards of other black Trinidadians and had aspirations to become part of the new middle class, but they were far from wealthy. Lebrun, despite being widely recognised as the island's best cricketer, was set to miss the second West Indies tour to England in 1906 because he couldn't afford the fare. On the day the ship carrying the rest of the team was due to set sail, he was wandering down to the harbour to see his teammates off when a local businessman, Michael Maylard wished him good luck for the tour. Lebrun disconsolately replied that he was unable to go on the trip. Maylard immediately offered to fund his participation on the tour and sent Lebrun home in his carriage to fetch his possessions. While Lebrun was gone, Maylard toured the Port of Spain shops filling a trunk with all the clothes and kit needed for the journey. By the time Lebrun returned from Maravel, the ship had sailed, but Maylard's determination to see him on the tour knew no bounds. He immediately chartered a fast launch and they set off in pursuit of the liner, catching it before it reached the open sea. With barely half an hour's notice, the Constantines found their father gone for six months, and Michael Maylard's generosity did not stop in 1906. 
He continued to support the participation of Le Brun and later Leary right up until 1939. Meanwhile, the young Leary had started school. Until the age of 12, he went to St Anne's, a government school in Port of Spain. It was here that he made the acquaintance of C.L.R. James, whose father was the headmaster. James went on to win a scholarship to the prestigious Queen's Royal College, whereas Leary went to St Anne's Catholic School, where he was a solid but not outstanding pupil. Nevertheless, Le Brun encouraged him to build a solid office career, and work in the city rather than on the land. Consequently, aged 15, Leary embarked on a career as a solicitor's clerk, with the eventual aim of becoming a lawyer. In reality, his chances of becoming a solicitor were slim, most openings simply being closed to black Trinidadians at that time. Nevertheless, he worked hard, and eventually was promoted to chief clerk. Initially, Le Brun had advised him to avoid playing club cricket in Trinidad. Leary was certainly good enough to play from his mid-teens, but Le Brun was worried that he might lose confidence or burn out early if he was exposed to top-class cricket too young. Eventually, though, he joined Shannon, the same club his father and uncle Victor played for. Like other aspects of island life, cricket on Trinidad was defined by race. There were separate clubs for whites, blacks, Indians, Portuguese and mixed-race players. Although the different communities had different clubs, they happily played against each other, and Trinidad's representative team was composed of members from all sections of society, although always captained by a white man, as indeed was the West Indies team. Leary finally made his debut in first-class cricket in 1921, when, at the age of 19, he was selected to play for Trinidad in the triangular tournament against Barbados and British Guiana. An unfortunate error almost snuffed his first-class career out before it had begun. He was scheduled to play at Queen's Park Oval against British Guiana, but the local newspaper printed the wrong start time. Leary arrived at the ground to find the match already underway, with somebody else having taken his place. He was given a second chance against Barbados, and again things didn't start well. He was out for a duck in his first innings, although he did make 24 in his second. He also took two wickets for 44 runs and took a good catch in the slips. He was selected again for Trinidad in 1922, this time making the journey to British Guiana, his first time outside the island. His bowling and batting weren't particularly successful, but during the game he was moved from slip to cover, where it was discovered that his fielding was very effective indeed. He was selected for the next match almost entirely on his cover fielding ability. Apparently, this aspect of his game also impressed the captain of Barbados, Harold Austin, and he picked Leary to join the West Indies tour to England in 1923. The West Indies had not toured England since 1906. Austin and George Challoner, another white batsman, were the only survivors of that tour. Also joining the party was Leary's uncle, Victor Pascal. At this time, West Indies cricket was still regarded as something of a novelty and had not yet been afforded test status. 
the 17-year gap since the last tour had resulted in a loss of the momentum built up by their previous two tours to England, and the tourists knew it was important to put on a good show to press their case for international recognition. Expectations in England were not high, and it was assumed that the islanders would struggle against all but minor counties' opposition. Unfortunately, it was a wet spring, and the touring side lost valuable practice time to the weather between arriving in England and playing their first match. Their opening game was against Cambridge University, where they were heavily defeated by nine wickets. Moving on to Hove, they managed a narrow victory over Sussex before drawing with the MCC at Lords. This was followed by a crushing 144-run defeat against Hampshire, and another heavy defeat to Middlesex. A month into the tour, it looked as if the naysayers were right, and West Indies cricket just wasn't up to snuff. However, as they got into June, there was a remarkable change in their fortunes. They won their next four games on the trot against Oxford University, Essex, Durham and Northumberland. Draws against Derby, Northampton and Lancashire were followed by a win against Cheshire and draws with Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire. Big wins against Warwickshire, Surrey and Somerset followed and although they lost to Glamorgan and Kent, by the end of the summer they had considerably redeemed themselves. Overall they had played 28 matches. Of these, 20 were first class, and they had won six, drawn seven and lost seven. In their other eight games, they notched up seven wins and a draw. The big star with the bat was undoubtedly George Challoner. He averaged over 50 for the tour and scored eight centuries. The top wicket-taker was fast bowler George Francis, with 82 first-class wickets at an average of just over 15. But Leary, too, was extremely popular with the crowds and was widely lauded in the press for his prowess in the field. When Wisdom came to report on the tour, they described him in the following terms. In deep field, he picked up while going like a sprinter and threw with explosive accuracy. Close to the wicket, he was fearless and quick. Wherever he was posted, he amazed everyone by his speed and certainty in making catches, which seemed far beyond reach. His movement was so joyously fluid and, at need, acrobatic that he might have been made of springs and rubber. While Plum Warner, who had done much to support the West Indies on their first tour in 1900 and who was now regarded as the grand old man of English cricket, described Leary as the finest fielder in the world. Two observers, used to the sedate and sometimes distinctly unathletic level of fielding in county cricket, Leary's style and panache was new and exciting making a similar impact to Ranjit Singhji's batting 30 years earlier. His exploits in the field may have looked effortless, but they were the result of those years of practice under his father's guidance, plus a further training regime of Leary's own devising. He would spend hours practising the art of balance by placing objects on the floor progressively further away, so that he had to stand on one leg to reach them, gathering them up before he toppled over. His batting and bowling were still a bit rough and ready, but he was developing into a promising fast bowler and his batting could set a game alight. 
Coming in later down the order, he was unorthodox but effective, and on his day could send a string of sixes zinging over the boundary. All of this made him hugely attractive to crowds, as he was so entertaining to watch. He was the archetypal one-day specialist, long before the county and international scene had considered the merits of this format. Chaloner and Constantine emerged as the stars of the tour, and were the players most used, each appearing in all 20 first-class matches. Leary's tour stats don't really do justice to his impact, because bare stats neither cover effectiveness in the field or entertainment value. He only made two fifties with the bat, and had a top score of 77 and an average of 15.74. His bowling average in first-class games was 21.86, and he took 15 catches. But he had caught the imagination of the public, and the eyes of those in the know. A string of England's most influential and senior players sang his praises, including Patsy Hendren and Herbert Sutcliffe. Most importantly, he was taken off by the great Jack Hobbs for a one-to-one coaching session. His return to the West Indies at the end of the season must have come as a bit of a letdown. For the next few years he bumped along, playing mostly for Shannon and turning out for Trinidad a couple of times a year. He played for the West Indies again when the MCC toured in the winter of 1925-6, but his life was mainly taken up with working as a clerk and weekend cricket. By now, he had moved jobs and was working as a clerk in the new Trinidadian oil industry. As well as cricket, he was also making a name for himself as a footballer and sprinter, even beating the Trinidadian champion over 100 yards on one occasion. In 1927, he married Norma Cox after a long courtship, and the following year their daughter Gloria was born. Leary was at a crossroads. Now, with a family to support, he faced a future where his employment prospects were limited by the conventions of colonial society, and the opportunities to play first-class cricket extremely limited. He was facing a watershed moment, and he responded to it magnificently. Faced with a glass ceiling at home, Leary decided that his best chance of building a secure future for his family was in England. He had seen English cricket at first hand on the 1923 tour. The scale and size of the grounds were way beyond anything in Trinidad. In England, there were hundreds of professional cricketers, and a man of Leary's talents ought to have no trouble joining their ranks. Another West Indies tour to the mother country was due to take place in 1928, this time with full test status. Leary upped his already stringent training regime. He was going to use the tour to showcase his talent and win a professional contract in England. When he arrived in England in April 1928, just as his baby daughter was arriving in Trinidad, he was a very different player from the young man of five years earlier. He was now in his prime, 26 years old, one of the fastest bowlers in the world, and a hard-hitting and dynamic batsman. He started as he meant to go on. In the first match of the tour at Derby, he came into bat with the West Indies eight wickets down and still 40 short of a win. He quickly guided them home with a swashbuckling 31 not out, composed of seven fours and a three. He followed this up with a century against Essex in the West Indies' second match. 
he was already earning a reputation as a crowd pleaser. The next game of the tour was against Surrey, and Leary was in form with the bat again, scoring a century in the first innings and 60 not out in the second. But he tore a muscle in the process. Leary was all too aware that the games at big venues would be his most effective showcase. On the first visit of the season to Lords, the match against the MCC had been severely restricted by rain, with only 31 overs played in total. Returning to that august venue to play Middlesex, it was vital for Constantine's ambitions that he put on a good show. On the eve of the match, he was examined by a doctor, who advised a complete rest from cricket for 10 to 12 days. If Leary ignored his advice, he was told he might do himself permanent harm. Leary found himself with a dilemma. He could sit out the next few games and be fit again in time for the first test, but he also knew that because of the bad weather in the early part of the season, the tour so far had run at a loss, and the businessmen at home who had bankrolled the tour, including his old friend Michael Maylard, faced heavy losses if the tour wasn't successful. As the man the crowds were coming to see, his participation in as many games as possible was vital. Furthermore, unless they could do well against Middlesex, few people might be expected to turn up to the first test against England. Against doctor's orders, he decided to play. Middlesex went into bat first and hammered the West Indies bowlers, including Leary, who had to take frequent rest spells all over the ground. They declared on 352 for four. The West Indies reply started badly. They were 79 for five and facing the imminent prospect of a follow-on when Leary came into bat. He laid into the Middlesex bowlers with gusto and scored 86 in an hour, meaning that Middlesex were forced to bat again. And the afternoon wasn't over. He took seven wickets for 57 runs in 14 and a half overs and put his team right back in with a chance. As he left the field, the main stand at Lord's gave him a standing ovation. Having bowled out Middlesex for 136, the West Indies now needed 259 to win, but were soon struggling on 121 for five. Once again, Leary came to their rescue. He scored 103 in less than an hour, including two sixes and 12 fours. The future Prime Minister, Alec Douglas Home, was in the crowd that day. Fifty years later, he recalled that one of Leary's shots actually hit the figure of Old Father Time that sits across the North Stand. It was the best shot I ever saw, he said. That performance on the afternoon of June 12, 1928, must be a solid contender for the best all-round performance by a single cricketer in one afternoon ever. It was the making of Leary Constantine. Watching in the crowd was Charlie McCartney, the recently retired Australian test player and former Wisdom Cricketer of the Year. He was so impressed by Constantine's performance that he went home and recommended that the West Indies be invited to tour Australia. Not only that, but he helped Leary negotiate his first professional contract. Nearly 30 years earlier, his father's friend, Charles Olivier, had sufficiently impressed on the 1900 tour that he had stayed behind and become a regular in the Derbyshire team, blazing a trail as the first black cricketer in any county side, and becoming a firm favourite with the Derby public before going on to play club cricket in Yorkshire and coach in the Netherlands. 
Leary may have thought that he too might agree terms with one of the county sides. Instead, he ended up playing for Nelson in the Lancashire League. At first sight, signing for a local team in a small mill town seems like an odd decision for a man who was more than capable of holding his own in first-class cricket. But the simple truth is that in the late 1920s, league cricket was where the money was. Leary was initially engaged by Nelson on a three-year contract, covering the summers of 1929 to 1931. He was to receive a basic salary of £500 a season at £25 a week for 20 weeks. Additionally, his enormous fares would be paid to and from Trinidad each year. On top of this, there was up to a further £100 available each year in performance-related bonuses. At a time when even the very best footballers in England had their wages capped at £8 a week, Leary was earning more than three times as much. At a stroke, he had moved from living just above the breadline to being one of the best-paid sportsmen in Britain, if not the world. What's more, unlike in the county game where he would have to play six days a week, Nelson only played on Saturday from two to seven in league games and in reduced overs evening cup fixtures in the height of summer. In truth, the one-day format suited his explosive style far more than the first-class game, and he eagerly embraced it. Nelson was not necessarily the obvious location for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Like other northern industrial towns, it was feeling the effects of the depression. Nevertheless, its cricket team was thriving, attracting crowds of 8,000 on a regular basis. This was far in excess of most county attendances and a remarkable achievement in a less than prosperous town with a population of only 40,000. Interestingly, Nelson's enthusiasm for cricket was not matched by its enthusiasm for football, and shortly after Leary's arrival, the town's football club became one of the few to fail to be re-elected to the Football League in the pre-pyramid days. They were relegated in 1931 and went bankrupt five years later. Without Leary's arrival, perhaps Nelson Cricket Club might have suffered a similar fate. Despite their impressive gates and membership of 1,500, they were £3,000 in debt when he arrived. Hiring him was a calculated risk, and it paid off well. Constantine attracted the crowds, attendances sometimes hitting 14,000, and average gate receipts increased from 200 to 300 again. With 13 home league games plus cup matches in a season, investing in Leary proved extremely worthwhile and when his contract came up for renewal at the end of 1931, his annual salary was increased to £650. Not only did Leary boost Nelson's attendances and income, there was a knock-on effect for all the other clubs in the league, so much so that they all chipped in when his contract was renewed again in 1934. Given that the Lancashire League was a small local affair with only 14 teams, these sums are very impressive. Furthermore, considering just how much money was being generated in just one part of the northwest of England, the obvious question is, why didn't the cricketing establishment latch on to the potential of the one-day format as well? It was to be 1963 before the county game introduced the one-day knockout cup, some 35 years after Leary signed for Nelson. Even then, it was initially a 65-over-a-side format, taking much longer than the Lancashire League games. It was 1969 before the shorter format Sunday League came into the county game, while evening 2020 matches similar to those in the Lancashire League Cup 
didn't arrive for top-level cricket until 2003. The answer goes back to the way in which English first-class cricket was tied into establishment traditions. Like many other institutions in sports, cricket had a colourful and dynamic past. In the early days, all kinds of formats and team sizes were tried out. In the mid-19th century, cricket had been, like football and rugby, a battlefield for competing visions of the future. Class conflict loomed large in the world of Victorian sport, and nowhere was the division more obvious than on the cricket field. Whereas the breach between working-class professionals and elite amateurs led to schisms and splits in the various football codes, cricket was different. Perhaps because it had extensive aristocratic patronage, long county traditions and many former first-class players in positions of real political power, it was a game where the establishment would countenance no surrender. Perhaps this was at least in part because cricket played such an important part in Britain's imperial initiatives. Completely professional outfits like the All England eleven of the mid-19th century were not to be tolerated. The MCC and the counties, alarmed by professionals taking their destiny into their own hands, took measures to ban them from grounds and marginalise them from mainstream acceptance. At the same time, invoking a spirit of Corinthianism and for the purity of the game, it was deemed that the colourful and extravagant waistcoats favoured by professionals were vulgar and out of place. Henceforth, cricket should always be played in white. Nevertheless, it was accepted that talented professionals were needed to give the game credibility. Such professionals were only accepted on the understanding that they knew their place. A whole raft of distinctions were put in place between amateur gentlemen and professional players. The two groups had separate dressing rooms, hotels and classes of railway travel. Players referred to gentlemen as Mr or Sir, but were addressed by their surname in return. Their wages were strictly capped, and they were often subject to arbitrary and petty discipline. Team captains could only be gentlemen, even if they were the youngest or least experienced in the side. Additionally, gentlemen, although nominally amateur, often received extremely generous expenses and lavish gifts from their counties. The worst excesses of this type were beginning to disappear from the county game in the interwar years, but it was a system that lingered on into the early 1960s. By Constantine's day, the county game had become a little stagnant. County grounds had a carefully fostered air of timelessness about them, as those in charge sought to maintain the environment of their youth. The cricket establishment had forgotten cricket's vibrant past and sought to preserve a particular 19th century type of the game in Aspic. Double innings games were held up as the only proper form of cricket, and first-class status, something which has always been rather arbitrarily granted, was jealously guarded. At the same time, there was a lot of complacency. Having decided around the turn of the century that some counties were first-class while others were not, the championship was a closed shop, with no promotional relegation. Some players could be rather lethargic and world-weary, almost hoping that rain would stop play, while others would be quite happy to take a couple of days to mount an entirely defensive innings just to make their averages look good. This wasn't to say that there weren't great or exciting players in this era. One only has to think of Jack Hobbs or Harold Larwood. But outside the test arena, the game wasn't exploiting its potential. Leary made his feelings about county cricket clear in an interview with the Northern Echo in 1929. 
Although Nelson is in Lancashire, it sits right on the boundary with Yorkshire, and so the interviewer asked his opinion on the Roses match. Leary didn't hold back. He lambasted them for taking six or seven hours to score 200 runs. He went on to criticise their orthodoxy and timidity as bowlers and fielders. Finally, he bemoaned how long county batsmen needed to get their eye in, and wondered whether they had an unwritten no-boundaries-before-lunch rule. Leary was still early on in his English cricket career and was perhaps a little naive. The interview was syndicated beyond the local paper and received rather more attention than he expected. It was later used, in 1932, as an excuse to refuse him a professional contract to play for Lancashire, although other evidence suggests that this was merely a smokescreen and that there were those, both within the team and the membership of Lancashire County Cricket Club, who strongly opposed his inclusion on grounds of colour. Playing for Lancashire would undoubtedly have given Leary more first-class matches in his career, and perhaps a much higher profile in the rest of England. But he almost certainly would have earned less money, and had less fun playing, than he did at Nelson. As for Nelson itself, what did this hitherto insular mill town make of Leary and Norma? And what did they think of it? It's fair to say that there was a learning curve for both sides. Surprisingly, perhaps, one of the things that was evident early on was that Leary's skin colour was less of an issue in Lancashire than it had been in the West Indies. At home, skin tone mattered immensely and largely determined one's place in society. In Nelson, where there was only one other black resident before Leary and Norma arrived, there was a great deal of curiosity about them, but little overt racism. People would initially stare at them in the street, and some children pondered whether his colour might come off on their hands if they touched him. But Leary put most of this down to ignorance, and in an age and an area where children were more likely to have seen blacked-up minstrels in a music hall than a real person of African origin, their misconceptions are perhaps understandable. On the whole in that first summer, the cricket fans in the town warmed to Leary quite quickly, but the rest of the people were courteous but reserved. Leary received some letters welcoming him, but he also received a few racially abusive ones telling him to go home. He was also racially abused by a teammate during one match in his first season after he accidentally ran him out. Leary made his objections felt in the strongest possible terms and there was never a problem with the player concerned again. As Leary's first season in Nelson drew to her close, he was wondering whether he had done the right thing and whether he would ever be fully accepted in an English town. The money and the cricket were good, but he felt isolated and was sure that this must be even worse for Norma. He put it to her that perhaps he should break his contract and not return for a second season. Norma gently reminded him that what they were doing was for their daughter's future, and that Nelson opened up possibilities that were simply not available in Trinidad. Leary resolved to stay, and at the end of the season his teammates, impressed by his hard work, asked him to captain them on a short tour to Scotland. With his fellow players' acceptance assured, the future in Nelson looked a good deal rosier. After the Scotland tour, the Constantines returned to Trinidad for the winter, stopping in New York en route, where Leary had been asked to play in an exhibition match by the city's Caribbean community. Feeling that Nelson was now where their immediate future lay, they returned in the spring, this time with daughter Gloria in tow. 
Now their relationship with the town, helped by having a child at school with all the relationships and interaction that brings, began to grow. At the same time, Leary was being recognised as a major asset for the town. Not only were his performances on the pitch bringing money and success to the club, but as a club professional, he was also expected to coach the town's aspiring young cricketers. He turned out to be a patient and inspirational teacher, with a marvellous rapport with children, much to the delight of their parents. By the end of the 1930 season, they could afford to rent their own house, and that winter the family stayed over in Lancashire, although Leary himself was touring Australia with the West Indies from November to March. In fact, the house on Meredith Street was to be their home for the next 20 years. By now, Leary was also thinking about becoming a writer. He decided to write about his early experiences in Trinidad, and about coming to England to play cricket, and he turned for advice to his old acquaintance C.L.R. James. Coincidentally, James had been thinking about coming to London to try and advance his own writing career, and subsequently arrived in the spring of 1932. James may have started to make a name for himself in Port of Spain, but London was a hard nut to crack for a recent arrival, and by May he was running low on cash. Leary generously offered to put him up for as long as he needed, and so it was that Nelson's Trinidadian community expanded once more. They used to tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob When there was earth to plough or guns to bear I was always there, right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread The relationship between Constantine and James proved the catalyst for both of them. CLR was a socialist and philosopher, with a keen interest in the politics of both the West Indies and the wider world. Already aware of the terrible social injustices at home, he was fascinated to find that the lot of the unemployed in Depression-era Britain was as bad and sometimes worse than that of their counterparts in Trinidad. He immediately became involved in the labour movement in Lancashire, while still considering what could be done to improve the lot of those back home. As for Leary, although sympathetic to the lot of the working man and the unemployed, especially in the many thousands who were thrown out of work in the mill towns, he had not previously given politics too much thought. Now, with his new lodger's stimulating presence, he made up for lost time. The two of them began to give a lot of thought to the struggle against racial injustice, as well as to how the West Indies might prepare for independence. They were soon in demand as speakers and would give talks throughout the North on cricket and the social conditions in the Caribbean. During the year they lived together, each had a profound effect on the other. Eventually, Leary was able to use his connections to help James get started on the career ladder in the UK. He managed to help him onto a BBC radio programme about the abolition of slavery and also introduced him to the cricket writer Neville Cardus, with the result that James landed a job as cricket correspondent with the Manchester Guardian. James's presence in the Constantine household was not entirely good for Leary's cricket. Their late-night discussions distracted him and his form took a definite drop in the 1932 season 
although it picked up again once CLR moved to London. On the plus side, James gave him invaluable help and confidence in writing his first book, Cricket and I, which came out in 1933 and was very well received. Meanwhile, on the cricket field, he continued to perform marvellously for Nelson. The downside to this was that he was not generally available for the West Indies on their subsequent tours to England. In 1928, he had played three tests when part of the touring side. Subsequently, he played three more tests for the West Indies at home at the beginning of 1930, and five tests against Australia the following winter. After that, his test career was patchy. Club commitments only allowed him to play in one test on the West Indies tour to England in 1933, after which he played in three tests in the West Indies at the beginning of 1935, before making his final three appearances when the West Indies returned to England in the summer of 1939. By then, he was no longer a Nelson player. He had signed a one-year contract with Rochdale of the Central Lancashire League for the 1938 season, where he had earned the phenomenal sum of £1,100. His brother Elias also played for the club, but Leary found cricket at Rochdale less to his liking than at Nelson. One of his reasons for taking the move was perhaps to enable him to return to first-class cricket for the 1939 season. The West Indies were back for the first time in six years, and even though he couldn't anticipate the coming war, Leary knew that he would be too old to play the next time they came. Consequently, he made himself available for the tourists, taking a pay cut to £600 in the process. Leary's intermittent appearances for the West Indies in the intervening years had done little to improve his view of West Indies cricket administration particularly the tradition that only a white man could captain the side. He had respected Harold Austin, who had captained him on the 1923 tour, but had felt that subsequent captains he had served under were just not up to the job. He had been particularly incensed to find on arrival in Australia for the West Indies tour that the captaincy had been awarded to Jackie Grant, a white Trinidadian fresh out of Cambridge University who hadn't played with his teammates before. Grant further irritated Leary when captaining him in the West Indies the following winter, when he was taken off for alleged intimidatory bowling, somewhat hypocritically perhaps at a time when their England opponents were seen as the pioneers of body line. However, in the fourth test of that series, Grant was forced to retire early with an injured ankle, and Leary took over the captaincy mid-match. It seemed that a non-white captain was acceptable once the match was underway, and Leary proved a more than competent hand at the tiller. The match was won, along with the series. Despite this, after the match, normal service was resumed. Jackie Grant was replaced as captain by his younger brother Rolf, who had even less of a valid claim to the role, having not even been able to hold a regular place in his university team. Ironically, Leary found himself taking over the captaincy from him too, partway through a match when he was hurt in a game against Lancashire on the 1939 tour. The relationship between Leary and Rolf Grant seems to have been particularly fraught. Grant berated Leary for not trying hard enough to win in that Lancashire match, even though the weather conditions made chasing 247 in bad light and heavy wind in just three hours an almost impossible proposition. Throughout the tour, he was ever-present in the West Indies side and finished the season as not only the West Indies' most effective bowler, but seventh in the overall first-class averages. 
but the day before the final test he had been taken aside and given a dressing down by Grant for not telling him where he was on his day off. It was an appalling and disrespectful attitude to take to a senior and experienced player, and Leary retorted that he would let his figures do the talking. Mother dear, I'm writing you from somewhere in France, hoping this finds you well. Sergeant says I'm doing fine, a soldier and a half. Here's a song that we'll all sing, it'll make you laugh. We're gonna hang out the washing on the Siegfried line. Have you any dirty washing, mother dear? We're gonna hang out the washing on the Siegfried By late August 1939, it was obvious that war was just around the corner. As Leary walked out onto the Oval for his last ever test match, he was conscious both of the barrage balloons floating over the ground and the large numbers of uniformed men in the stands. The omens were not good, but he was determined at least that he would try his best in this last match, just as he had in all that had gone before. On the first day, he took five wickets for 75, as well as a run-out of his own bowling. On the second, he scored 78 runs in an hour, as the West Indies finished on 498. It wasn't the century that he'd hoped for, but it was a fine innings to cap his career. In theory, he should have had one more match, but in view of the deteriorating political situation, the final game of the tour, against Kent, was cancelled. The majority of the West Indies party caught a ship to Canada, and Leary returned to Nelson. By now, he was studying part-time for his long-postponed law exams, with an eye to a life beyond cricket. There'll be 